Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hello, Australia. Welcome to My Millennial Money. Jumping in here for a special little update midweek. And I'm joined by Alex Vikovic from the Australian Financial Review or the AFR. Alex, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. G'day, Glenn. Thanks for having me, mate. Last time you uh, had me on here, I'm pretty sure I told your listeners that Donald Trump was about to be re-elected as President of the United States. So I'm uh, well, <laughs> I'm glad that you had me back once again, man, so I can uh, spread some more misinformation. Yeah, well, the thing is, you might be right when it comes around to next election. So Well, hey. that's true. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I was quite as, uh, as sure as I'm making it out now. I'm sure there were some nuances and caveats in there. Yeah, and there's actually always nuances in everything, isn't there? And... This is, I think, why I like to do these podcasts and maybe just have a bit more of an open form chat about a topic rather than just seeing a paragraph of text online. Yeah, no, absolutely. So we're going to talk about a couple of things today, and they're realistically just articles that I've seen that Alex uh, has written on the AFR and topics that he's written about and I want to discuss. The first one, we're going to talk about the super changes that have come in, and then we might have a quick break and then swing back around and talk about this Finfluencer business. Now, I will say a couple of things at the outset. Alex is a... You know, I think you're a good journalist, Alex. Um, Thanks, Glenn. I think you're a great podcaster, mate. Thanks. Well, I was going to say, I think you're a great journalist, but, you know, there's always room to move. <laughs> but I do want to say, like, you know, Alex is a journalist and I know that, you know, I've known Alex for some time. He's been a writer in the wealth space for some time as well. We carry on like friends and all that stuff, but I'm under no illusion if I mess up he's going to come out and get me because you're a journalist and you're just after the facts and the truth. So I just want to say that, Alex, like I know that I'm, I'm patting a tiger uh, when I talk to you <laughs> on and off the records. <laughs> well, you know, no friends, but also no enemies. That's kind of how it goes. Yeah, right? that's so right. So Try and keep it fair with everyone. <laughs> that's right. So the super changes that uh, have recently got up, can you talk to us about maybe some of the politics behind it first and then uh, we'll list some of the changes that are actually now in law? Yeah, sure. So it's it's been a bit of a difficult birth, this one, for the Morrison government. And if people haven't been paying attention, then uh, frankly, I'm not super surprised since it's, um, you know, fair to say it's not the most important thing or the most pressing thing probably on the, the national agenda um, over the last year. But certainly, you know, a topic um, that is very important, not just to people's financial lives, but to both sides of politics. Um, and what we saw, you know, heading into the budget last year, remember the federal budget was kicked down the, the road because of the pandemic. So come October, um, they, they just, they, you know, they called us all in here as they usually do, although we, we don't head to Canberra anymore for the, for the lockup. You know, it's all, uh, we've all got our separate lockups, which we did in the AFR newsroom and the treasury, uh, uh, pointy heads come and, and take your phone off you and they let you into the, the lockup to get access to the, the budget documents. And you've got about five hours to sort of pour over to the, those and, and put together the next day's paper, which is a sort of great tradition, um, in, in the media and one that goes back a long way. Um, uh, and before I went in, you know, I called a few contacts in the superannuation industry, people that run big funds and some of the lobbyists and so on. And I said, um, so, you know, what are you guys expecting? We're not hearing much, but, but what do you, you know, what's, what's, what's going to be in there? And they all said, oh, not this year. You know, we've had enough fights in the past. There's not going to be anything. No, no nasty surprises this year. It's all going to be pandemic front to back. So I was pretty surprised uh, when I got in there and it was my job to cover super uh, for us um, and uh, there was quite a lot to cover and, and, and a serious piece of um, legislative reform um, that was, you know, in their language going to shake up um, the industry um, and the goal of it um, primarily was to try and return um, about $18 billion worth of fees 
back to consumers over the next decade. Now, um, we know that the um, there is a lot of inertia in the system. This is something that the Productivity Commission looked at a few years ago. You know, the problem is that um, a lot of members, you know, because it's compulsory, a lot of members are just not engaged. Um, and even though a lot of super funds have been providing a pretty decent service, and some of them are, you know, not for profit in the way that they run. Um, they have been charging arguably exorbitant fees. We pay $30 billion of fee in fees, um, in 2019, which is, you know, almost as much as we used to spend overseas, um, before the pandemic. Um, so look, it's serious amounts of money. The rivers of gold, um, people who follow superannuation closely call it. And it's rivers of gold because people largely have not opted in. Um, they don't see that money. Um, uh, but of course, what's changed? Is a few things, and and one of them is the early release scheme, which no doubt you've you've you know touched on before, Glenn. Um, and I think this was a way that the the government um, was really kind trying to test um, whether people really did feel that super is still the sacred cow that that it used to be, um, or whether a new generation um, might be more willing to to dip into super and and might see it as their own money. And mm. and you know that's been super controversial, um, but that's important kind of background was the early release scheme because, I, you know, sources in the government are sort of saying to us, they feel like they won that argument, even though they were smashed in TV ads. Um, and, you know, a lot of people were against it. The industry was, you know, came out really strongly against it. But I think the government feels as though it has achieved the goal of um, connecting at least part of a new generation with the idea that super is real money. And that's pretty powerful if that is the case. Um, and so there's all sorts of fights to come down the road that we can talk about another time, super for housing and so on. But, but the idea was, um, this, um, this reform package would aim at reducing fees. Um, and it would do that, um, a number of ways. Um, it would subject uh, super funds to a new annual performance test. Um, now, the way in which that they were going to go about that was was super controversial, just like everything um, relating to superannuation. But they, they ended up changing that a couple of times, but there's a sort of a methodology there by which funds will be um, tested on their performance every year, net of fees. Um, and if they twice flunk that test, basically they'll be put out of business. In the first instance, they need to write to members to let them know that they've flunked. Um, there's an online ranking tool, which... You know, during the whole political argy-bargy over the last year probably um, hasn't been the one that's been focused on the most, but now that it is law of the land or will be law of the land, um, it's probably going to be one of the most important, particularly for younger people, uh, because the idea is, um, you know, people can go online, it's administered by the ATO, um, and they can essentially see how their fund is performing relative to others. Now, this is a pretty normal thing, right, that we have on the internet now, you know, Finder and CanStar and all these really um, pretty successful comparison tools have gone and done this in asset classes and in products like insurance, for example. But one of the things that's been missing from their arsenal, of course, is super funds. Why? Because it is a nightmare, right? Whatever you, whatever methodology you choose, um, you're going to face seriously well um, organized and capitalized um, political operatives and they're going to come at you hard because because there's a lot of money at stake, right? Mm. It, it is a system. And so I think it's important for people. Um, uh, I'll, I'll go back and, and, and continue to explain, you know, whatever else is, is it was in this package and, and we can go into them in some detail. But sure. I think it's important when you're talking about super to understand um, for both sides of politics how important this is. On the one side, um, you've got um, the Labor Party that, considers it almost like Medicare. You know, this is Paul Keating's great legacy, the compulsory superannuation system. For them, it's a total sacred cow um, and and it stands for what they believe in, which is a sort of, um, you know, a strong role for government um, in sort of, um, I guess, uh, ameliorating inequality by making sure that it's not only people who are, you know, perhaps have high levels of financial literacy or high levels of income who are saving for their retirement, but all workers um, mandated by the state, right? And then on the other side, um, you know, you've got the the Liberal Party, many of whom, you know, their rank and file have always been opposed to this concept on purely philosophical grounds because it's, you know, a compulsory sort of annexing of people's own money against their will, which is super, you know, non-libertarian mm. uh, kind of thoughts. But over the years, um, uh, the Liberal Party, just like they did with Medicare, I think has come to realise that they've kind of lost that argument and, um, you know, it has broad public support, the compulsory nature of the system. 
But what they've done instead of trying to to completely, um, you know, undermine it or, or, or make it voluntary is is try to tinker with it to make it more competitive, um, to um, to make it more efficient. And so what that means is they essentially want to try and get as best as possible a bit of a free market happening, which is always really difficult to do when you're dealing with a compulsory product mm. um, that people haven't opted into, um, haven't signed up to. And of course, um, you know, th- the bulk of it is really determined by um, not people's choice on the open market, but the um, particular agreements that their employer, that their workplace has in place um, by way of the default system. So, you know, um, if you're in a particular industry, then there's a, a union who has, has worked very hard to get a workplace agreement that directs funds to a particular fund, right? And, and all those things are, are big money spinners from the industry. And I suppose that's the other political element here that a lot of um, conservatives and libertarians uh, really don't like about the superannuation system um, is that, uh, you know, trade unions are a lot less powerful than they used to be because the industries that they represent by and large have been disrupted by technology and, um, you know, th- their membership is declining. But at the same time, the industry super funds, which is the one that everyone, will, the ones everyone will recognise from, you know, the big TV ads, the, um, the uh, you know, uh, the compare the pair ads and mm. the fox in the hen house, um, uh, uh, they are, at least historically, linked to the trade union movement. So um, even though union membership is declining, industry super funds, particularly since the Royal Commission, um, which, you know, really um, – portrayed bank-owned funds in a really bad light while industry funds were kind of left unscathed at the end of that that banking royal commission since then they've boomed you know they're at 800 billion dollars they've they're up 30 percent in a few years um so they're really booming um which a lot of um advocates for industry funds and for non-profit super would say is a great thing Mm. um that that you've sort of taken all these people out of bank-owned funds that were underperforming and put them in industry super funds but the politics of that also means that the trade unions and by extension the Labor Party um, have a huge uh, donor base um, that, that, that was previously closed to them, right? So, so that's the kind of real politics here. Um, you know, the, the, the nature of any compulsory system is always going to be politically charged, right? Mm. Um, when I talk to Americans about, um, for example, the Australian super system, They'll just, you know, their minds are blown that, that, um, that both sides of politics and our entire super system and our entire political system supports a policy that, that sort of is, is government mandated savings, right? Um, but then you talk to people in Europe and, and they're, um, jealous of, of the efficiency and size of Australia's pension system, which is, you know, envy of the world and all that. So, you know, there's really macro themes that tie in, mm. um, to, to, to super that make it really politically charged. And, um, the bit that's, even more annoying is that both sides of the debate with super tend to not want to admit that they're coming from an ideological or a political position. Mm. So the way that I'm talking with you right now, um, you'll generally only hear a, 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 a financial journalist speak that way. Yeah. Anyone else who has a dog in this fight around super will tell you the other side are completely ideological and our side is based on facts. Um, and our economists are better than their economists. And it's just a bit of a nightmare for consumers because no one is willing to say, you know, um, these are my stripes. Um, I am a died in the wall supporter of, you know, the labor movement. And that's why I think industry funds should be as powerful as possible. Or on the flip side, you know, I don't really, um, believe that trade unions should have a role in capital markets and, 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 and therefore I, you know, want to try and get industry funds and make them less powerful. Like nobody, um, really who's in the fight will speak that honestly about it. Mm. Um, and so they, you know, go to these great lengths to, you know, put in different assumptions and, and pump out different answers. And, and, and there's all these kind of alternative facts that fly around in terms of the numbers and how much worse off a worker's going to be if this law comes in or that law comes in. So that's why it's uh, both an interesting and a fraught space to write about for those um, it, who do my job. It's <laughs> funny. I, um, as you know, like I've just finished this book and yeah. in the super chapter and the investment chapter, I actually spent a lot of time researching under the hood of a lot of funds and it's actually so bloody confusing. And I pretty much resolved that the compare the pair campaign was a joke because I couldn't even compare the same industry funds with each other because of the asset allocations. Like it's actually 
it's horrendous. But and all those problems that you've come up with, I mean, they're still going to be problems when this online ranking tool gets off the ground. And In fact, it'll be yeah. bigger problems. So right? just to bring it back, so we've we've got the online ranking. We've yep. got the um, if you've super the online fa- ranking, the perform the performance tool. Yep, the performance test, which is basically. We think that it's going to be what, like, we're going to every year the last six years of returns. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And 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 basically, um, they just apply um, the, the the certain benchmarks based on. So they're index based, right? So so they're sort of comparing to the market in the relevant asset class. Um, there was a bit of a whole scandal um, last year. When a lot of the kind of, um, you know, finance nerds who were looking at the policy as it was, um, sort of explained in the budget. And they said, look, what's going to happen here is that, um, there's going to be an incentive for super funds to just follow the index. Now, a lot of super products out there do just do that, right? Yeah. Um, and, and they get, um, people like Vanguard or BlackRock, big global, um, index hugging sort of mm. managers, um, to do that. And that's not an illegitimate thing, I think, as long as, um, consumers know that's what they're getting. And, and frankly, they should be paying less for that. So the disclosure around the fact that that's what a lot of funds are doing, um, is not well disclosed. But I think, but, but there's, um, there's a lot of bigger funds though who, who don't do that and who do their own investment management or outsource to active fund managers and, um, and the big industry super funds, you know, Australian Super CBUS, um, Host Plus, these, these, you know, massive mega not for profit funds, mm. um, that are linked to trade unions historically. One thing that they've always prided themselves on as well is, is sort of a nation building role, right? Yeah. So you'll see that on the telly. You'll get a former labor you know, uh, uh, MP or, or, or minister like Greg Combay and he'll come on and talk to you, to you about how important, um, the industry funds, the role that they've played in, in sort of supporting the nation's infrastructure. So what they actually mean there is that they're actually deploying member money to unlisted infrastructure at property and construction projects, which on the whole have been relatively, you know, lucrative for them. And so, um, a lot of the, the, the funds themselves, but also the kind of academics in this space, and and, um, and and lobbyists and so on were nervous that there would be this um, because they were um, index based um, benchmarks um, that there would be this incentive for funds to just go well screw it we're not going to bother doing that we're just going to you know sign people up to a to a, Vandex, a Vanguard index fund the way that a lot of people are playing along at home. Um, and then what, you know, the losers of that would be, um, you know, these, these massive nation building projects and, and airports and, and, and roads and, and, you know, things that are, that are sort of politically popular and, and important for the country as well. And, um, then it wasn't just the industry that, that had to go at the, uh, the government. They were sort of pretty well equipped to deal with that. They're pretty used to, um, to taking on the super lobby, particularly the industry fund. But then it was the nationals as well who, who turned around and, and they said, well, hang on, if this is the Case, then we don't really like this either because, mm. um, of course, a lot of the, that super, those super rivers of gold go to, to regional projects, um, that employ a lot of people in, in, in regional and rural areas. Mm. Um, and so the government backed down on that. And they added another couple of indices, um, one for property and one for um, infrastructure. Yep. Uh, and that seems to have sort of fixed the problem. So it's a technical fight, but one that's important for people to understand because the, the sort of the consensus is that um, that whole um, sort of scare campaign last year, um, super funds will no longer invest in infrastructure. All they'll do is, you know, sign you up to a, to an index fund so you're better off doing it yourself, which was the a lot of the commentary that was out there and that had some merit at the time. That seems to have gone away um, and it doesn't seem to be the um, the consensus so that's the, um, the, the the performance test and then if they don't meet the performance test they've got to let their members know and then if, yeah, if they don't meet it for them. a second year they're not allowed to take new members into their my super option. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and of course, um, that's already fraught with danger, right? I mean, if, if people opening letters from super funds was an effective way of, of, you know, creating an efficient superannuation market, we would have had that a long time ago. All of us are getting letters from our super fund all the time, right? But it hasn't moved the needle on engagement at all. So look. The performance test, I think, will be one that is really um, more for regulators and for the industry itself to take note of. It's really the online um, ranking tool that's more consumer-facing. Yeah, but I think the whole thing sucks because, and sure, it's better than nothing, but um, I'm sceptical 
for a couple of reasons. And this is mm. just off the back of me researching how the super funds work for the book. Like mm. they, there is so much smoke and mirrors behind the scenes with super funds. Like it's so crazy. And I'm thinking, oh, well, do they maybe withhold a, Uh, an unlisted asset price until after the date or bring it forward the valuation and um, massage for numbers. Like that's number one. But number Mm. two, we don't want people every 10 minutes looking at this and changing funds every year. That's totally right. And, and, and it's not just confusing, right, Glenn, like this is a, there's a dark arts at play here. Like it's opaque on purpose. Yeah. Um, that's the whole point. Um, if people don't understand it, and this is the way that the financial services industry, I would say traditionally has operated, right? Um, the more complexity in the system, the more difficult it is to understand, the more likely it is that you're going to pay a higher fee for somebody else to deal with it. Right. And, and that's the democratization that we've seen. Um, but having said that, I, I don't, um, I do think you're, you're right. You know, there, there are those problems, but I also don't think, you know, that it's fine to say, um, well, you know, certain funds are just going to gain the system. So better to just not have a, a tool at all, which is what we've had. Yeah. I, I think so it's, it's good in principle, but yeah, I've just yeah. got a healthy level of skepticism. Oh, 100%. Um, just in the way that um, funds can disclose their asset allocation. And I'll give you an example, one that I looked at in the book as a, a pre-thing, and mm. this isn't a sale about my book, but, you know, they say if you look at the risk levels that APRA set out, you've got one to, I think, seven, uh, mm. with seven being high growth and yeah. I think over six years of negative returns, right? And yeah. I guess what I'm getting at is Australian Super's default fund, right? It's set at 80% growth for a balanced fund. Number one, don't know what planet you're on, but that's not balanced uh, when it's 80% to growth. Number two, it behaves like a 90% growth fund. And they also say it's one of the only funds that say there's a minimum hold time suggested of 10 years. Now, we know that more risky and volatile assets, you want to hold for at least seven to eight to nine years. But why have they got a fund that's at 80% growth and we're saying that we suggest you hold this for 10 years and the skeptic in me thinks it's Mm. either a uh, hold onto the fund longer or they're doing something with the asset allocation behind the scenes that's actually more risky than you know, saying we suggest you hold this for seven years. Yeah, yeah. And look, and that's, you know, these these reforms that have come through last week and that are now law are just a small tip of the iceberg in terms of, the, the you know, the range of debates that are out there. But one of them is around this point that you've raised of the kind of competing definitions. Um, you know, one fund considers balance X, another one yep. considers it Y. Um, and, and, and look, I think skepticism is the right word. I mean, that's certainly the way that we look at it, um, yeah. as, 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 as the media does with everything. Um, I don't think it would be right to say that they're all out there trying to simply fleece, um, uh, you know, their members, um, at, at, for nefarious political purposes. And equally, I don't think it would be right to say that they're, they're all out there, um, you know, uh, uh, or because they're uh, somehow not pre- no, but I guess I'm saying good actors or- like if Australian super come out and say we're the highest performing fund in Australia. Well, that's mm. fine, but if we can compare it to all the other funds, you know, it's actually- yeah, You have to have that overlay. Like, yeah, it's, you yeah. just got to look at the asset allocation and there's something going on. And I'd love Australian Super to be able to come on the podcast and actually explain it to me because I'm genuinely- uh, Well, you've got more chance than the financial review, let me tell you. But <laughs> Well, but again, it might prove that they'll never want to work with me on a commercial basis, which is fine, but I've genuinely got some questions and yeah. I couldn't yeah. find the answers online. Yeah, look, it's not easy to find answers in this in this space. Um, I've been trying to do it for a decade, yeah. um, and and, and, that, and that's where you know I think the government pushing through with these reforms in the middle of a pandemic, um, even though there is huge lobbyist pushback, even though there are you know really well healed consultants who make a living out of telling you know showing funds how to game this sort of stuff. I, I do think that they deserve some credit for, for having a crack at it, mm. um, but of course there are going to be um, uh, all sorts of problems, and and, and one of the problems. Actually Actually, around what you're saying um, is one of, one of the key criticisms of the performance test um, uh, is that there isn't a risk overlay, mm. right? So it's going to look at you know performance net of fees and essentially you know raw data on returns. 
but it's not going to factor in how much risk a fund took on in order to achieve that return. Exactly. Um, and, and so you will get this kind of, you know, tail chasing um, uh, uh, element. What do they call um, like but, the risk adjusted return? Yeah, yeah. But, um, and, yeah. And, and so this is not that. Yeah, look, there, there are all of these problems uh, that have been levelled against the, the, the policy and, you know, that's um, that's fair. And, of course, there were a lot of criticisms that were made um, that, that were effective because the government has, has changed this bill um, a number of times uh, uh, and, and, um, and uh, you know, everyone got to have their say. Paul and Hanson was in there at the end negotiating and, and, and it really was a, um, a kind of circus. And so, um, you know, they've, they've done an okay job of... of um, dealing with some of those concerns, but but a lot of others remain. Now, the other thing that I think is probably one of the biggest wins is the stapling of people's super fund. I know the mm. Labor Party didn't like that, um, which I don't know why they actually generally didn't like that measure. Yeah, well, Can you a, explain few- the measure and the politics behind it? Yeah, it's complex because it, now you're getting closer to the default sort of system, which is the heart of the conflict, I would say, in superannuation, right? Um, and so the way that it has traditionally worked is that, um, you know, most people, as we said, are, are pretty apathetic. Um, they join one fund when they're um, having their first ever job. Um, in, you know, the vast majority of cases at that stage in your working life, you're just going to be defaulted into whatever the default fund is that is associated with that employer. Um, so it might be, uh, you know, most likely it's one of the big industry funds that have a well, connection the, to the union. Yeah, it wasn't the, uh, it was the Gillard government that put it in the award that if a person doesn't select a super fund, it goes into a, an industry fund. Like it's in most awards. Yeah, well, it, it, and that's something that the, the the unions have fought very hard to get um, to get those into um, workplace agreements, right? Mm. Uh, now they would say they're doing their members a, a great service because they're they're stopping them from going into into retail funds that have um, you know charged more and, and in and in recent years anyway underperformed. So you know uh, that would be their argument, the way that it, it always is. Um, uh, to be fair, um, but the stapling measure, the idea is you know traditionally you would um, leave a job, uh, then you'd be defaulted into another fund, then you'd be defaulted into another fund, which is that familiar circumstance that a lot of your um, listeners will will understand, which is you're getting all these different letters from all these different groups, some of which are not even spelling your name right. Um, and um, and the big problem there, um, it, it, well, there's, there's many, right, in terms of uh, compounding interest and so on, but, but, but the main problem is that you're paying fees to all of them separately. Yeah, you're absolutely. often paying insurance to, to all of them separately. Um, and and duplication um, is a serious problem in the industry that both sides of the warring sector admit is a problem. And so the government, this is one of the main ways this stapling that the government thinks that it can actually put money back in people's pockets in terms of the fees that, that are being taken out of the system. Uh, so instead, what they're going to do is um, staple um, you, uh, the member, to the first fund that they ever defaulted into. Mm. And then when you switch jobs, you'll stay with that fund. Now, that would be an effective way of going about duplication, but there's a few um, problems. Um, uh, what the um, uh, what, what the industry super funds say is that the really big problem there is that because it is um, you know all funds that are eligible for this you all you have to do is 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 have the default arrangement with the employer in order to in order to get the the the, the business um, they say that uh, you know there's a high likelihood that many people will be stapled to an underperforming fund, which would be worse for them in the long run than um, having the duplication problem and going from fund to fund. Mm. Uh, in fund, the the industry funds say that um, it would be around two hundred thirty thousand uh, dollars. You'd be two hundred thirty thousand dollars worse off um, if you're a sort of twenty year old going into a dud fund than if you had just um, you know moved to another fund at twenty three. You know, three years later, but. Again, but any of side of the fence can do projections and, and uh, assumptions. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And so people do need to be skeptical about those. But, but nonetheless, I'm giving a sense of the sort of you know language that's out there and 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 the ideas are out there because of course that's um that's my job. So um, mm. I think that um uh, you, you know this measure here is a bit of a dent in the default super system because um you know for a lot of funds out there, not the really big funds that have a lot of first time 
full-time um, uh, workers. So, you know, um, groups like um, Host Plus and Rest that, that have a lot of, um, you know, uni students and, and, and younger members, um, you know, they're going to still continue to benefit from this. But a lot of other industry super funds, so for example, HESTA, which represents the healthcare industry and nurses, mm. um, or, or the construction um, industry fund, um, CBUS, you know, they tend to have um, slightly higher numbers of um, members who have had previous jobs because there's a, you know, there's, there's education you need to go and receive before you enter the healthcare workforce, for example, you know. Um, or similarly, uni super or legal super, some of these more, more educated or specialized funds. Um, so they're going to sort of struggle as a result of this because they have traditionally picked up a lot of business, um, from the default system. I guess, you know, the government would say and supporters of this law would say that none of this matters anymore. If the online ranking tool He's works, doing his job, people yeah. use it. Yeah. That's right. And so, you know, the government's response to this is none of this stuff matters. We're actively trying to, um, you know, take to to put some dents in the default super system because we want a system um, that is um, basically consumer led and where people are looking at the numbers and effectively choosing their own funds off the back of that. But the problem is, you know. Yeah, if I if everyone if I'm sounding skeptical about uh, super funds, it's because I am, and mm. I, I just I'm scared. Like I would probably even say if you're in a super fund and it's in the top ten on that list or the top fifty or whatever that is on the list, it's probably an okay fund. You don't have to shop every year um, because that list you'll fall into the trap of. Uh, knowing or believing that past performance is an indication of future performance. Yeah. So yeah. that's, you know, that, that's right. If you're going off, you know, pure numbers. And, and so look, I do think some of this, um, I do think the online ranking tool is helpful just to kind of get a sense, but you know, just like any other investment, I think you, you got to do a lot more due diligence than, than, uh, just going off a ranking. There's no perfect methodology and, and, and this is why it's important for people, I think, to understand this broader um, context and that like this political issue is never going away. Um, you know, both sides of this debate are key donors and supporters of our two main political parties. And so um, this is going to continue to be um, an issue. That's why the, the other interesting element to this bill, just to round out the full um, package, the fourth element after stapling um, is um, this clarification that funds need to act in the best financial interests of their members. Um, now, some lawyers say um, that the previous rule, which was that they have to act in their best interests, already kind of factors in financial interests. Um, but this is a sign of the government going hard to say that, um, you know, basically funds need to be focused on generating a financial return to their members and nothing else. Um, now, they haven't given um, a full answer of all the, you know, a full answer to all the theories flying around about why they might be keen to do that. But sources of mine in Treasury um, basically seem to say that they expect it will be more difficult for funds to do massive sponsorships of stadiums, um, to do TV advertising, and that they are indeed trying to crack down on that. Mm. Um, the government's being a bit more careful in its language. It is saying um, that basically funds can do whatever they want, but every dollar that they spend, they'll need to justify. And they've reversed the onus of proof so that funds actually need to explain to the authorities why that dollar was in the financial interest of members. So that's going to take a lot of paperwork. And for a lot of smaller funds, they're just not going to bother. Yeah, that's right. But also, like, if you look at the numbers, uh, you would hope and think that what's good for the geese is good for the gander. And a fund might say, well, if we get more funds under management, we can run the business more efficiently and all that stuff. So... That's, well, that's true. And that's, and that's the argument that's gone back for years here. Um, and, um, you know, before the Banking Royal Commission, there was a lot of talk about the fact that industry funds and not just the banks, the bank owned funds were going to, to, you know, come out of this inquiry looking pretty bad. Um, and that is because, um, you know, a, a lot of critics of industry funds, um, you know, do say that they are, um, because they're not for profits, uh, and they don't have to generate a, a shareholder return, they do spend, you know, in order to amounts of money on TV advertising um, and those TV ads have, to go to your point around past performance, um, have often trumpeted their past performance, right? Mm. 
Um, but they, um, the industry funds were pretty effective at that inquiry um, of saying, well, no, every dollar we spend on TV advertising is in our members' interests because we're saving them from being in a crappy bank-owned fund that is there to generate a profit to the owners and to the shareholders. Um, and, you know, the Royal Commission accepted that answer um, and that's a pretty good ally to yeah. have for that, for that, for that case. Um, so, you know, this is going to continue to, to be um, the line from industry funds. And frankly, there's, there's, you know, there are, I think, both sides to that argument. Um, but what's going to be interesting is if a lot of funds um, are nervous to be engaging in marketing or education or financial literacy because they're scared that of, of how, you know, it will be perceived um, uh, or, or indeed they're scared of breaching this financial best interest duty, then that's one of their main arsenals traditionally for trying to explain things to people, right? Um, so, yeah, pros and cons of, of that one. But I guess the general point with Super is um, I, I would encourage your listeners to share your level of scepticism um, to uh, try and engage with the media around this. You know, we, um, you know, we, we, we get accused um, from time to time of being uh, on one side or the other um, at, at our newspaper. But I would say most of the time uh, both sides are pissed off at me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which is generally a pretty uh, good indication that you've got it right. So I would say, um, you know, be careful of the uh, of the information sources because, um, you know, both sides of the um, superannuation system, as we said, are not just big donors to, to politics but to media. Um, they do a lot of TV advertising. They sponsor the footy. You know, they are major contributors to our to our national uh, public purse strings. Well, even uh, halfway through 2018, Sun Super was a, a show partner of my podcast for a year. Um, yeah, yeah. And I would, you know, I would welcome any super fund um, if they wanted to be a show partner because I like money. Uh, I need money to make a living. And I will say just for everyone that's listening and who knows about our podcast and, you know, there are a couple of super funds that have reached out to me and I've said, no, I'm not comfortable with you being a sponsor on the show. Um, one of the reasons I went with Sun Super was uh, their level of transparency uh, with the information they've got on their website and um, it kind of met my gut test and all that stuff. But, um, you know, I do like money like the next person, but... Well, it's good that you're, uh, you know, you're so transparent about that, Glenn, but since you are spruiking your own um, uh, uh, sponsorship uh, opportunities there, I, I should say any super funds are welcome to, to come on and sponsor the Wealth Generation newsletter at the Australian Financial Review as well, if they are yeah. listening. Uh, <laughs> not that I get paid to, to do any sales. I well, certainly but don't this get is, any commissions. And we <laughs> might actually use this as a segue to talk about this thinfluence of stuff because mm -hmm. it is around money. So, we're going to take a quick break and we will be back right after this. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Okay, we're back. We were talking about money and sponsors and all that stuff. And I'll be the first to say I'm out here running a business online and I need to make money to pay the five staff in the business to provide a free podcast to everybody. That's all fine. Uh, the AFR, it's a commercial world. You guys need sponsors. You know, I think uh, conflicts can be managed, Alex. And all that to say is... <laughs> The influencers, what's happening? Because you bloody kicked a bees hive a couple of weeks ago and then there was a story that went up this week. And if you are listening, the date is the 20... What's the date today, Alex? The 20... Is the 22nd? It's the 22nd, yes, because it's my birthday. Yeah, it's my birthday in two days, everyone. Um, uh, happy birthday. So, we are recording this on the 22nd of June um, in the afternoon an article went up yesterday, and I think it was today in print on the AFR, about Dobby in a dodgy influencer to ASIC. Now, you kicked a freaking bee's nest a few times in your Wealth Generation newsletter, and we'll put a link in the show note if you want to subscribe to that, and some articles online around this influencer thing. Where are we at 
what the hell's going on, and then Look, I'll I, I, answer some questions that people have sent through <laughs> as well. I've not been kicking any bees' nests, Glenn James. <laughs> I've just been uh, fairly and accurately reporting the sectors that I'm tasked with. Um, but, look, it, it is a fascinating space, and, and, and this um, goes back a, a little way. Um, you know, it, it was really the um, the sort of August last year when um, the retail boom had kind of happened already. Um, uh, this is, you know, well before GameStop. But, you know, we were already starting to see this kind of influx to the markets and um, ASIC actually pulled all of these um, stockbrokers and, and, and um, uh, different sort of institutional players um, in for, for a webinar and it said to them, um, uh, and this is just around the same time that it sort of came out publicly um, uh, confirming that the numbers of retail um, investors had gone through the roof yeah. in Australia, which a lot of people sort of suspected, but, you know, the numbers around that, it was just about to release. But it also pulled them together and it said, you know, we're concerned around herd mentality in the markets. Um, uh, and we think that that is partly to do with what it calls social trading, right? right? So the idea that um, people's investment decisions have um, by and large been directed or influenced by their peers on social media um, or by, um, you know, people who are more authoritative commentators on social media, which we now call influencers. Um, and, of course, this space goes right back, right? You know, it's, you know, ASIC um, first put out its guidance around um, giving advice, uh, what you can and can say about investments um, uh, in online forums, you know, more than 10 years ago now, maybe even close to 20 years ago. Um, and, um, you know, it, it was very much a sort of post uh, early internet um, uh, kind of, you know, uh, chat room style discussion. And it hasn't updated that and clearly um, I think it needs to. But there has always been, you know, the hot coppers of the world and and, and online forums dedicated to um, to 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 investors um, and they've always, you know, straddled that kind of line between information and advice. Um, I guess what has changed is um, firstly um, the profile of the investors. You know, ASIC of the belief that there's a lot more inexperienced investors who are self-directed and who are putting in larger amounts of their own capital into the markets and are therefore perhaps slightly more vulnerable. Um, but it also, um, uh, you know, the, the internet itself has changed a lot. So one of the things that the regulator is grappling with is that it's a lot easier for them to go in and monitor uh, a hot copper forum um, or than it is for them to monitor uh, a live stream, for example, on Facebook um, or, or even TikTok because, it, you know, these are like generally boomer or at least Gen X lawyers that we're talking about um, who, who don't really know how to use TikTok, right? Mm. So they've actually had to invest to, to, to look into this. And so that's the kind of um, macro view of what's going on is that as we're seeing um, these larger numbers of um, really millennial and Gen X investors into the markets, um, we're also seeing more scrutiny of the, um, I guess, uh, advice sources or information sources that they're using um, to invest. Um, now, all of that is stuff that your readers and listeners know, mate, because I suppose you were a bit of an inf an early influencer, if I can uh, call you that. And and uh, oh, you and may, but whatever. <laughs> but um, but they um, you know, they they, they follow these individuals and they um and, and they 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 engage with this this content. Um, I think what's probably um important to know and 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 you know, ASIC hasn't said this publicly, but this is sort of my understanding of of where of how ASIC is thinking about this internally. I guess there's kind of two buckets when you look at the um, finfluencers. There are um, the ones who are effectively criminals, who are small in number but high risk, who are effectively um, using social media platforms in order to either, um, you know, raise money for pure scams um, or they are pushing products in an illegal way or accepting illegal forms of remuneration. Um, and so they're small in number, but that um, seems to be the main thing that ASIC and indeed the other regulators around the world are really focused on. And I think that's probably a good thing. That's where they should be mainly focusing, right, is, is trying to, to get rid of the sharks. Hey, um, just before we move on to the, sh um, the non-sharks, I yeah. just sent you a, a screenshot of, a, of an influencer and someone sent me this. And this person did a screenshot and you can look at the profiles, a big following, 
Uh, a while back, I was doing custom portfolios for a select few people and I want to do it again for 20 more people. I'll draw up a custom portfolio for you based on your investment size, risk appetite and time frame. I'll write out what cryptos I personally would buy based on that criteria. And he and he goes on and he's basically selling these for $1,000. It's not cheap, $1,000. No. You, can, you can have an initial, uh, you know, consultation and, and uh, some sort of scale plan with, you know, any top financial planner in the country. Yeah, like or like surely. bloody Life <laughs> Sherpa for 500 bucks. Like, yeah, so, exactly. You know, it's out there and it's real. And this yes, guy here, yes. he's blatantly giving personalized advice because he's taking into account objectives. Yeah, that's right. So he, this is a, this is an example of exactly what ASIC's looking for, yeah. where, um, most likely the person who's, who's, um, you know, written this meme here, um, knows what they're doing is illegal. They're most likely, you know, they're not super sophisticated criminal, but they're, um, they're, they're, they're basically scammers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they are in, they're in conducting an illegal activity. So you look, we, if people see that stuff, ASIC is keen to, uh, to, to, to hear about it. I'm, I'm keen to hear about it at the, at the AFR. Um, whether people, you know, choose to dob in others is, a, is, I guess, a, a moral and ethical question. Well, and the thing right? is, but, Alex, remember, um, I was dobbed into ASIC. Exactly right. And, and so, so there, there are I went people that are going to be caught up in this. Yeah. Um, yeah, and look, um, ASIC would take the view that, um, you know, if you see something, say something, right? I mean, that's um, probably the safer way to it be. It was funny. For the newer listeners, uh, someone dobbed me into ASIC and we went through a heap of phone calls and they went through uh, all my podcasts and YouTube and they actually, there was the case manager on the phone and the ASIC lawyer and they said, Glenn, on this date, you uploaded this video and you said this statement here and they asked me. Yeah. Do you think that was personal or general advice? Do you think that was factual information? Like they were not messing around, one hundred percent. And I'm sure that was a pain in the ass for you. But I actually, oh mate, I was scared. I was like freaking. I was called, you know, Vince Scully. I called Vince. I'm like, am I going to jail? Like, uh." yeah. (laughs) But we took the high road at my millennial money, and we now pay for a general advice license. Hey, I just want to jump in. I'm editing this myself, this episode, because it was done late in the day and Nath, our usual editor, finishes at five. I just want to clarify that ASIC gave me some writing on letterhead that I wasn't in the wrong and I didn't do anything that um, effectively breached any laws that they could see. Uh, But that's why I did take the high ground uh, just in case because it was grey and I wanted to not work in the grey areas. Uh, So that's why... I pay for a general advice license now just for the avoidance of all doubt. Okay, back to the interview. The other point that ASIC um, does make is that, you know, it, it really does need to be um, generating an income mm. um, out of this advice in order for it to be something that ASIC looks at quite clearly. Um, but that doesn't mean that other regular people won't be caught up in this quite easily um, because ASIC, um, you know, sources of mine at ASIC have, have, have said to me that they are watching um, the other type of influencer as well, which um, is um, perfectly well-meaning people who are not criminals, who are the people that many of us follow um, for fun, who have um, genuinely good intentions um, and may either um, by no, you know, by simply making a mistake, um, uh, put out misinformation or potentially false and misleading information that, that could, um, you know, direct people's investment choices and cause problems for them. Yeah, and um, and I like I must say like a couple of years ago I really wanted to make it my personal mission that we get Australia talking about personal finance the same way we talk about uh, personal fitness and we're wearing active wear to the shops and all that. So I think there's a place for someone to say, "Hey, I've got this account. This is how I save money at the supermarket. This is how we went on holidays." And there was you know we did these hacks. That's such good encouragement. It's such good engagement. And I learned from some of these FinTocker accounts because, you know, I can't cover everything. You know, I don't know what it's like to run frugal because it's not my skill set. So, mm, mm. It's, yeah. it's a tough uh, place. 
it is a tough place. I guess I don't. Um, I guess the reason why to go to your, uh, your, your you know, cook, kicking down the uh, the bees nest or whatever yeah. you accuse me of. I think you know the reason that I have been um, supportive. I'd say um, recently more than others in the media around some of these influences, uh, partly because I think that in the case that you're talking about, you know, you had a couple of young women there with um, growing social media profiles who were simply, you know, criticising a product. Uh, and then bring it to the attention of the press, which, um, you know, to explain my own biases, um, any journalist worth their salt would always support a whistleblower, um, and would come in to support them, uh, and, and, and wouldn't have them be, um, you know, publicly bullied if, if they were helpful in terms of trying to provide information that may or may not be in the public interest, right? So this is a case where, you know, I think that the questions that are being asked, um, not just by these influencers, because I guess the definition of a influencer is once they cross over to actually monetizing and 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 you know making a coin from it, but also um, their followers and and um, regular people who are, who are chiming in. The questions they're asking are the right questions, right? Um, as, as a journo, like I think that they are doing a great service. Now, sometimes, of course, um, th- there's going to be inaccuracy out there, and fair enough because nobody is paid I- by and large some sort of upfront fee, um, expecting that to be um, you know accurate um, and. and and they're not under a licensing regime that, that requires them to be. I mean, I would encourage people to be as responsible in their online discourse as, as possible, right? But for me, the um, benefits, um, as you've just spoken about them, of engaging people in finance, asking questions of providers, helping to bring about that scepticism, all of that to me outweighs um, any potential downside from a well-meaning influencer who may well, um, say the wrong thing. But and I guess know, I have some sympathy because the media gets it wrong sometimes as well, right? And oh, we all do. The yeah. The older I get, the more I realise I'm a hypocrite. But um, I think it's sometimes a novice question is actually the most enlightening question in the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if and, you can't and, explain it to a fifth grader or whatever, can you you know, stand behind it and does it stand up? That's kind of... That's right. And, 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 you know, traditionally the industry has inoculated itself from this. It's not used to um, having to answer these sorts of questions. I mean, it's used to answering them from people like me at press conferences, mm. right? Um, but it's not used to having to deal with them on Instagram mm. um, uh, or, or on TikTok. And I think that that's overwhelmingly um, a positive uh, sort of development. But, you know, as with anything else, you have to, um, you have to really um, scrutinise any of the information that, that you're receiving. I think the other thing that ASIC is maybe concerned about, and I think there could be some some grounds for this is um, some of these well-meaning influencers could easily, I think, fall prey to um, a business model um, or a you know um, a, a sort of fee model um, uh, that might not be in the interests of, of people watching or that could be conflicted. And we've seen this in the past, right, Glenn? Where I'm sure a lot of your former colleagues in the financial planning industry are perfectly good, decent employees, family people, and then they got caught up in a system where there were these kind of conflicted incentives and they and they kind of, you know, got sucked into it by their employer or by others. Mm. Um, and that's how it often does occur, this kind of misconduct. So I do think, you know, there are sharks who are going to be out there trying to look at how they can kind of monetize and get a, get, 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 um, get a piece of this, um, sort of influencer action. And so, you know, the ones who are creating this content need to be aware of that. And, and just like you were outlining with your podcast, be super selective who they do deals with, right? Yeah. And, um, and I mean, I talked to themselves. one influencer once and they said their whole, um, purpose for the online account is to make money. Mm. And I encourage that individual that I think you need, that's not going to have longevity. You need to go back to, you want to educate and help people. Yeah. And look, making money is not going to be difficult to do if no. they um, don't apply an ethical filter at all, right? Um, uh, so, um, you know, the, maybe the dark web it would be a good place yeah. for them. There's all sorts of money uh, to be made. Um, but uh, not that I'm endorsing that. But, but just you know, on I, this, I think- um, yeah, so the licensing requirement, I've mm. started to say publicly now that- mm. I think if you do have significant influence and I've just thought 10,000 followers on an online account uh, because after after 10,000 followers on Instagram, as it stands at the moment, you can have a link on your story, all right? So, I think if you've got over 10,000 followers and you are monetizing the um, account, you're actually not doing it for fun at that point. You've got mm. 10,000 followers, you've got affiliate links, you've got all that, 
all that's fine. I just think if you've got that many people following you and you're making money, there needs to be some type of bar or threshold um, that needs to have some type of, I won't say license, but, you know, the current framework that ASIC have just doesn't fit. Yeah, yeah. Well, at the very least, they need to go back and review the the, the guidance. That's right. Um, but I don't think a licensing regime is right. We have enough of those, um, and they inevitably cause all sorts of problems. Um, you know what has happened in the financial planning world for, for actual advisors is that the owners of those of those licenses have, have come to um, you know over the last twenty years control a lot of that advice, um, and a lot of it hasn't been in the the best interests of of consumers. Right. So I mean, I don't think having a license um, uh, is necessarily the answer to to um, good quality information, but I do think that influencers need to abide by the law as it stands, um, and that means that they can't recommend financial products. But the um, problem, and they shouldn't go near that. Yeah, but the problem, Alex, is as the law currently stands. As soon as you open your trap and talk about a product, a class of products, or whatever, whether you're at the pub talking to your mate, or whether you've got an Instagram account with twenty thousand people following you. The moment you say the word superannuation or mm. uh, investing or in shares, you're over the threshold So the mm. of uh, financial product advice. So, the question isn't, are they giving advice? As far as ASIC are concerned, the guy at the pub is giving advice all day long. The person online is giving advice all day long. The question is, under the current regime, should they be licensed? Now, we know the yeah, guy at the pub true, shouldn't be, be licensed- exemption. That's mm. right. And there is a media exemption. So, for yeah, example, yeah, well, this I'm, is- I'm talking on it right now. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, uh, the Today Show, Ross Greenwood will- Oh, he's not there anymore, but whoever it is now. Um, yeah. We'll talk about shares for 10 minutes, but the main- Chris business- Kohler. Yeah, <laughs> hey, Chris. The organization. <laughs> um, I've got to get Chris on the podcast. I want to get him and his dad. He's a lovely, lovely I know. Man. I know him. We know him from- Well, I Don't met him. Don't worry about his dad. Alan Kohler's old news. Chris Kohler's the future. I want to get them both on. I'll, maybe we'll get <laughs> you and Chris on. Um but, you know, the core business of the Today Show isn't to do um, affiliate marketing for an investment platform. So, there's an exemption. Mm. Yeah, so, that's right. And that's yeah. why my gut feeling at the moment is if you're an influencer and you are making money, well, what's your core business for that account? Yeah, yeah. And I do think that's probably the way that um, ASIC is thinking about it as well, which is why they keep bringing their limited comments in public so far mm. back to the idea of um, a business carrying on, you know, kind of the commercial operations of financial advice. Yes. Um, so, so for them, they're, they're not worried about the bloke in the pub because he's not being monetized for that. Um, uh, and so, you know, that's probably a good way to think about it. But I think broadly there's, um, you know, I think – I think there's been a little bit too much dismissal of what a lot of these influencers are trying to achieve. Um, and as much as I'm a big advocate for professional financial advice, Glenn, and have been throughout my career, as I generally I. think, yeah, and I generally think there's a, um, a benefit to, to getting that over getting it elsewhere, if nothing else, um, because of the legal recourse that you've got if something goes wrong. And that's where a licensing regime is helpful. That's right. Um, but having said that, um, I don't buy this um, idea that we've seen uh, in news.com.au and elsewhere in the last few weeks where these influences have been kind of um, really disparaged um, because there's this, there's this line that um, unless you're licensed, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, you know, firstly, that really, I think, um, doesn't do justice to the Royal Commission process that we had, that a lot of um, journalists who worked a lot longer uh, than me over many decades have, have fought hard to, to, to sort of get off the ground um, and the whistleblowers and, um, you know, people who, who sort of put their hand up to, to expose that misconduct and make that inquiry happen. I don't think it's, it's sort of um, does any kind of justice to, to have this view proliferated out there that people who've been licensed have never committed any harms. And I also think, you know, when you look at the education thing, um, yes, it's true that um, they're introducing reforms to um, force financial planners to upskill, but the majority, as it stands, don't have university degrees. Now, I'm not a big believer that a university degree is the is the be all and end all, and that you know we need to have um, the education is the only thing that people should be looking at because, of course, you know Bertie Madoff had all sorts of degrees. Um, uh, but I do think that you know there's this kind of knee jerk view from the industry 
um, that, um, you know, these influencers are, are dangerous idiots who are unqualified. And it's just simply not true. There are all sorts of people who are out there engaging in their finances. And, and many of them are very accomplished in their personal lives and have got all sorts of, uh, you know, uh, qualifications. So, yeah, I think it's a bit overdone. And I would probably say, number one, first and foremost, get your own, like, don't even listen to Glenn James. There's so much crap that I say that's probably not right. I just want to head up this community and be the leader. Whereas, you know, we did an accounting, I did, actually, I did some accounting Q&As on Instagram the other day. And it just, it was a prime example. I've got no idea about tax. So, uh, go to an accountant. And I think the whole thing... Um, you know, I think Superhero did that uh, report that you may have mentioned that mm. there's actually bugger all people getting advice from Instagram, like realistically. Yeah, well- and if you really want to look at it um, in terms of a financial risk, if I open a uh, an online account that some influencer reviewed and then I invest $2,000 into it, right? Mm. Provided it's not freaking Cripcoin or it's just a Vanguard fund or whatever, yeah, there's not a huge material risk to someone's life. Like we're not talking about you know the you know the storm financial thing where we're giving loans to um, you know 58 year olds who you know are about to retire and they're getting double geared into this thing. Like it's it's pretty innocent. And yeah, I, I yeah just... a lot of it is. And and look, my gen- look, my general view is, and I'm a bit of a free speech guy. I do think there should be rules around this. I do think some of it's potentially dangerous. But at the end of the day, I think people need to consider it what it is, which is free online information mm. with no barriers to entry, which is effectively crowdsourced or peer-to-peer, right? Um, and I think we are very much moving to a world um, where people are willing to pay for content. And we, we saw that. It's taken a long time since the internet came about for, for that culture to change. But we saw in that superhero research that even a large number of millennial investors um, are engaging with, um, you know, online news that has paywalls with print newspapers that have, um, you know, a barrier to entry. So, of course, as um, someone representing the AFR, which I think is the world's most expensive newspaper. Um, really? I'm, I'm going to have, yeah, yeah. And, and um, you know, it's and. I'm going to have a bias towards um, a user pays model. But frankly, I see the benefits of that every day because an article that I write, while, you know, occasionally, of course, I'll get it wrong just like anybody else. But there's, you know, four or five um, very qualified human beings who see my work before it becomes public, right? So, mm. it's the absolute opposite end of the spectrum um, to uh, a live stream on TikTok. The people, you know, there's there's multiple human beings, there's fact-checking, there's sub-editing, um, and that's expensive, right? Yeah. And even the, um, so, we did an Instagram post the other day called It's Tax Time Baby or something like that, and I put mm. tax tips. Even the thing that I wrote in one of the tips was slightly incorrect. Like, there was one thing that was in brackets or whatever that was miscorrect, I had to put a correction in the comments. So, no one's above this. So, if you're going to yeah. really have a whinge about something online, it's free, lower your standards and move on. Yeah, I think and, and be willing to pay for um, research, not just, um, you know, newspapers, but be willing to pay for bespoke re- research for professional advice um, and for things that, you know, you can trust. Um, but that doesn't mean you should disengage or be nervous about following um, a bunch of influencers who have um, great content. And I think um, those influencers need to be aware that um, the regulator is watching them and should be. That doesn't mean that they should stop doing what they're doing, um, but it means that they should maybe um, be sure of where the line in the sand is um, and, um, and, and make sure that they're not crossing it to the best of their ability, right? Yeah. And uh, we might finish up because we're going to start to sound like a couple of old guys having a bit of a uh, too much of a rant. I'm a millennial. I don't know about you. No, I'm a millennial. I just scraped in. Yeah, I'm a millennial. (laughs) I thought you were just using the branding. No, 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 no. I'm official. (laughs) Um, But everyone, like, if you are- We're cusp at best. No, no, no. I'm well and truly millennial. (laughs) Back off. Um, For any influencers listening, uh, I'll put a link in the show note. I'm actually going to do a live uh, webinar uh, with Vince Scully and we just want to kind of get some influencers together and you'll need to apply, you know, if you've got an account with 100 people and you haven't posted in, you know, five weeks, we might not, you know, admit you. But for any active quote-unquote influencers, we're just going to have a webinar and it's going to be closed to the 
general public, like you must have a, a Finfluencer account. And we're just going to open the floor and just if you want any, if you want to ask some questions about investing uh, in a safe place, we just want to start to educate you. And, um, you know, we, I'm really like keen to kind of help this part of the ecosystem. And, you know, I want to get Jane Hume on, but she probably won't come on. But I want to really talk about this stuff and see how we can uh, get the legislation in line with the technology because it's the same story. You know, Uber faced it, Airbnb faced it, Tesla faced it, like mm. all this uh, 21st century stuff with 20th century uh, legislation, it's an issue. Well, I'm sure all the content creators out there just want some some clarity on all this, right? And they're, they're not going to get it from this government um, uh, because, um, you know, we've been asking this question for over mm. a, a year now, not just um, what do they think about influencers, but, but what do they think about this broader kind of Robin Hood trend of self-directed retail investors in the markets? Um, and they haven't had an answer and, and then finally did come up with an answer and their answer was, uh, you know, let the market uh, run. Mm. So, uh, you know, I think probably they've been distracted in the super wars and... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> haven't had the time to come up with a, a cogent policy to try and deal with some of these. But honestly, games, so like... It's going to fall to you, Mr. Mr. James. Well, <laughs> I'll give it a shake because like, honestly, I want everybody, no matter if you're an employee at a job, whether you're self-employed, you're a builder or a plumber or a marketing assistant or a hairdresser, or you're an online influence, whatever, I want everyone to be able to make a living uh, guilt-free and do bloody well. You know, I hope there's an influencer out there that's legitimate and he's printing money. Yeah, and, and be willing to correct yourself when you're wrong, right? Absolutely. And I'm not above any of this. You know, I've taken the view that I want to get out of the grey uh, and pay for a licence. If there was a, another type of licence or something that was, an, you know, $40,000 a year, you know, definitely consider that. But, you know, it's just, um, it's a real thing and I'm not above any of this. Well, neither. But uh, but having said that, not not <laughs> not looking forward to there being a, a license regime for journalists anytime soon, or a regulator for that matter. Yeah, well, that would be a step too far. Totally. So, <laughs> all right, we might leave it there. You can um, subscribe to the Wealth Generation newsletter. There's a link in the show notes, and we will uh, we we'll look forward to our next chat, Alex. Thanks, mate. See you next time. All right. Bye. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports A21, a charity focused on abolishing slavery and human trafficking all over the world. Check out a21.org.au for more info. If you would like some other giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to thelifeyoucansave.org.au. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.